Welcome to the Pillow Talk podcast. I'm Will Beck. I'm your host. And today I've got Jill Kargman on with us. Jill's a writer, actress, mom, and an expert meme poster. And uh, Jill, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. I always say meme curator because I'm not really generating most of them. I usually just sort of see what I see online and things that I respond to, I'll repost. But um, yeah, I love memes. I feel like they communicate my personality in a way that other stuff can't. Yeah, that's actually kind of what I really found interesting about you. I was like, who is this person that is posting all these random memes? (laughs) And then I was like, but they're so funny. Like you had one today that talked about how when we were kids, like we would call somebody's parents' house and... You had had to to talk to their parents. (laughs) Can you imagine? It was so cringe. They're like, oh, I'll go get Jessica. How are you doing? And you had to like make small talk with the parents. Like, shoot me. Although now kids don't, a lot of kids don't know how to talk to parents because they don't have that kind of day-to-day practice. Yeah, maybe it was good for us, you know? (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Um, Yeah, but it's that kind of thing where you can communicate so much in like such a small idea and it feels like, oh, I totally resonate with that. And I think that's the best thing about memes when you have this like, yeah, I get that. <laughs> yeah, it's its own language, especially for Gen Xers. It's like as the little code. Yep. So how did you sleep last night? I slept great. I slept nine hours. I have to say, like, guys, I'm not evangelical about products. Like, I am rarely somebody who gets into shit where I talk about it without sounding like a paid spokesperson. I f- love Pillow Cube. Like, it has totally enhanced my sleep. And for any ladies listening, I mean, I'm 47. I feel like I must be in like perimenopause, but middle age has totally f-ed my sleep up. Wait, can I curse? Cause you're like in Utah. Um, well, we generally don't curse, but you know, okay, we'll sorry. figure it out. We'll bleep it. Or okay. <laughs> we can bleep it. All right. All right. Sorry. You're talking to New Yorker here. Well, I, um, love Hello Cube. It's totally enhanced my sleep. Cause I feel like especially with women when you're like lying on your side, if you're a side sleeper and you have your hips and your boobs and everything, it just like balances you out somehow. I find it so centering, but I slept great last night. I generally sleep nine hours a night, which is, I know it's such a gift. It's so rare, but um, I was awake (laughs) and sleepless for about 11 years when I was a stay-at-home mom. I had three kids in four years. I was always sleep deprived and now they're all grown up and I can sleep nine hours and it's heaven. So are they all out of the house, all the kids? Um, no, but they sleep longer than I do. I mean, they're, yeah. <laughs> they're ni- 19, 16, and, and almost 15. So they're, they're never they, waking you up. No, they never wake me up. I have to like drag them out of bed on the weekends. Mm-hmm. So um, how old were you when you had your first kid? Uh, 28. And then were you writing a lot at, by that point or were you... Uh, I was a writer for MTV. I was what was called a permalancer. So I would be booked on a show like for a certain number of months as a project. And I was writing for magazines. I started out in magazines Mm -hmm. um, and then started writing for TV and film. And then when I had my kids, it was, it was like hard to have the flexibility. So I started writing books. My first novel was called The Right Address. It came out when I was 29 and Sadie was I think she was like 10 months old and came on my book tour with me. And I realized like, it's really the perfect, was the perfect career for me and was for the 11 years that I was a stay-at-home mom. And then once they were older, I wanted to get out of the house a little bit more. Um, And that's when I 
started freelancing again and was at it working at an ad agency copywriting TV commercials when I met the producers, um, Dan Rosenberg and Tim Piper, who who eventually sold Odd Mom Out, my mm-hmm. my show that's it's streaming on Peacock. Um, and it's kind of loosely based on one of my novels, Momzilla's, about stay-at-home moms in New York. Mm-hmm. So you had them at home or you were home with the kids, you were doing the writing thing. So tell me about like odd moms out. What is that? Like, is that something that's still going on? Like, are you kind of out and about more with that? Um, So odd mom out was a TV show from 2015 to 2019 um, streaming on Peacock. And um, no, that that's been done for a couple years. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I love doing it. I loved acting in it. I loved writing. Now I'm sort of transitioning into writing. Um, well now I'm writing a play and then I just wrapped, I was in a movie that's coming out next year. Um, so I really found acting so easy when I'm not writing it because Mm -hmm. typically with odd mom out, I was, you know, on set as in many capacities, I was, I wrote it, I was producing it. Um, created it, you know, acting in it. So I had really long days. Um, And as an actress, you know, it's just so easy. Like I sat around a lot, people bring you water and they're like, are you okay? You know, (laughs) being compared to being a stay-at-home mom where no one's asking you if you're okay. And if you'd like anything, that's your job to take care of everyone else. um, I found it to be like a walk in the park. And like the days are kind of long, but most of it's just sitting around. You could just be on your cell phone. I mean, it's so easy compared to being a stay-at-home mom. I really think anything is just because you have adult conversations and it's, I just remember being so exhausted during those years of like younger motherhood. I was so tired and, you know, they get older and they're like my favorite people to talk to and hang out with, but you just, you're just not as tired. It's so great, even though you're old, but it's just, it's so much easier now. So if there's anyone listening who has little kids, it just gets better and better. I will testify to that. I, I've not done the stay-at-home mom thing, but I was married to one, still am. Um, but she, uh, we had, we have a 15, 13, and 10. And yeah, so it, that's like us. That's like almost the same spread. Yeah. And it was just like for, I don't know, probably six or seven years, maybe eight years. So it's just like, so hard, you know, it's so hard. You're just so tired. And but funny, I do think, oh, sorry. I was just going to say the funny thing is nobody's like looking at the single mom and that's, or not single mom, but like the mom at home with in that situation and being like, oh, wow, she's so incredible. She's so amazing. They're just like quietly. There's no award ceremony. <laughs> there's no credit. You don't get a promotion. You don't get a bigger office. You don't get a business card with a higher title. So it can be really hard because sometimes you feel like it's thankless. Um, and you know, you get like some love on mother's day, but like, you know, I have really grateful, appreciative children and spouse, but even like maritally, and I love my husband, I'm really, really lucky, but I felt like most of the work fell on me. It's just like society. Like if there was something wrong at school, they call me. So it was just all the buck stops with the mom. And I just felt like I was a little bit drowning in my life during that period. And now it's just so great. And I feel like my marriage is like, my husband had said, like, my girlfriend's back, you know, because like, yeah. I was, I was such a, I was so tired all the time for so long. Um, you know, so it just gets like more and more fun. I'm, I wouldn't, if you said to me now, like, turn back the clock, you could be 
27 again, I would say no. Yeah, this isn't better. <laughs> yeah, I um kind of feel the same way. We, uh, my wife, you know, like I said, our youngest is 10 and it just feels like, oh man, like we have a relationship again. We can breathe and. Yeah, you, you know. can go out, you can have fun. They're self-sufficient. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not going to like accidentally electrocute themselves. Like you have to have eyes in the back of your head and you're or it just, I think a side effect of that is you're always like a little nervous. Whereas like, I'm just so much more chill now. So how did you kind of make the transition from being a writer to being a actor? Um, well, I was meeting with Andy Cohen about this show. He had sort of um, wanted to, to brainstorm doing a reality show mm-hmm. with me in it. And I just, I have no interest in that as a writer. And I don't watch reality shows at all. Um, sometimes maybe a food show or something, but I don't watch any reality shows. And so mm-hmm. I said, you know, I, and he's like, but I want to see you. So that was sort of how that happened. But I was always an actress in college and was never not in a play, but I didn't want to then graduate in like audition and wait tables. That was just never anything that I was, I'm like a workaholic and I really mm-hmm. needed a job. And, um, so I was always into writing too. So I just, and Matt, that was really the magazine heyday in the mid nineties. So I had a job waiting for me right away after college and really, you know, it wasn't easy, but I felt like I got so much experience. Mm-hmm. So I never looked back. Did you want to be a writer growing up? Like, was that like your kind of like childhood goal or how did that come about? Um, not really. I feel like I was always just kind of good at it and I write the way I talk. So it felt kind of easily relatable, but I was really always an actress in school, all through school, childhood and and caught through college. But I just knew I didn't want to go through that like process of not working and, and waiting around for an audition. It just didn't seem like a lifestyle that was going to work for me. Mm-hmm. So um, the writing the, the books, like how do you get inspiration for that? Like, where do you get your ideas? Oh, just from like my life is so, I, I don't know. I love my life. I think I have such a fun life. I live in New York. I'm right in the center of the city. I meet a million people. I had my kids in with three different classes of parents doing wildly interesting things. So I just feel like it was all by osmosis because I'm entrenched in sort of the capital of the world. Mm-hmm. Do you journal a lot? No, never. I was just, so I read the, sometimes I feel like a nut, your book. And mm-hmm. I was just like, how does she remember all of these things? I mean, they're all kind of crazy things, but they're, you're playing from all these like different times as a kid and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, I've never been a journal person. Um, I just have crystal clear memories. I mean, it's weird because I'll forget like something from last week, but then I have really vivid memories from, you know, when I was younger in my twenties or most of the incidents that are in that book are things that are kind of burned in your brain, but memory yeah, vi- is very vivid strange. memories of hanging out at the Playboy club with Sue. Yes, very <laughs> much so. It's yep. an only a New York kind of story. Yeah, that uh, that book. The re- one of the reasons I really loved it is I felt like I knew you when I was reading it. I was like, oh my gosh, this is my friend. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people say that. I mean, that's the thing is, I feel like I don't filter myself whether it's on my Instagram or my writing or the way even just like talking to you now. I mean, I will now. I won't curse because you're a good Utah boy, but um, I really don't have an edit button. I'm always a lady and I'll be polite. I'm not, I don't tell people what I really think of them. If, if I'm 
you know, in a social situation, but, um, like I know I'm not, I'm never fake. It's very hard for me to be fake. Um, I, so, I think there's a lot of fakeness kind of in society today. And it's like, here's what I'm supposed to say or what I'm supposed to think. That's right. And you kind of have like, uh, you know, like the Republican camp of what you're supposed to say and the kind of the more liberal camp of what you're supposed to say. And people kind of like entrench themselves on either side of that. And that's one thing I've noticed with you is I'm like, oh yeah, she just feels what she wants to feel and says what she wants to say. And it doesn't necessarily conform to one or the other. And I'm like, oh, that is so refreshing. <laughs> I'm very centrist politically, which gets, which is fun because people hate me on the right and the left. And yeah, I really I don't give say, a shit. Yeah. I'm a Democrat, but um, I don't like what's going on on the far left of the Democratic Party either. So, um, you know, I get hate from all kinds of psychopaths. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned in your book that I felt like was like very un-Democrat uh, of you is that you said that you love shooting. Um, yeah, I, so I used to have a gun, um, but I'm very into gun control. I mean, I mm -hmm. had a, I got my gun in New York City, which I think is the hardest place to get a gun. So I had to be interviewed by the FBI twice and I had to go for an evaluation. They basically have like a shrink or somebody, I don't know, but they did a mm -hmm. full background check before I could even take lessons at my gun club, um, let alone by my Walther. And I was all for it. You know, I thought mm -hmm. it was great. I don't want them giving guns out to psychopaths. So when I met with them, they were like, huh, I think you can be liberal and like guns and shooting. You just don't want any idiot to go be able to waltz in and buy an AR-15 and shoot up a school. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I'm all for guns. I felt like very powerful when I would go shooting and stuff. I loved it. But I think that there need to be background checks and I don't see why you would need an assault rifle. Mm -hmm. You still shoot a lot or? No, no. I, that was like during that phase with the little kids where I just needed something to myself and my husband uh -huh. would like drop me and I would go shoot at my gun club and clean my gun. It was like just something that was mine because I feel Fun like habit, when you have little hobby. kids, you're never alone. Like you're just never alone when you're married with little kids. And it was like just my hour a week that I would go be by myself and do that. And I really enjoyed it. So a uh, somewhat interesting side note is that I was a student at Columbine High School. Wow. Yeah. It's so terrifying. It was. Yeah, I was there. I graduated in 2001. So I was there for the shooting and all that. And were so, you, you were, was it, did you lose friends? I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. That's horrible. Horrible. Yeah. Uh, there were probably so like sorry. 13 people were killed there. One was my track coach and he was like the jumping coach and I was a long jumper, high jumper. And then, um, I'm so sorry. That is so tragic. Well, I'm just, it's sickening to me. Yeah, so sorry. 23 years, you know, and the crazy thing is that it's still, you know, happening. Still oh, happening. The, the one in Texas the other day was just like. It's so heartbreaking and enraging. I can't, I can't even believe it. I can't handle it. It's so upsetting, but I don't, I normally I'm a pretty hopeful person, but I just don't know that there can be change with these, this horrible gun lobby. And, you know, if they're killing first graders in Sandy Hook and it didn't change, I don't know how I can. I don't yeah. know how many of these have to happen until these morons change their mind. Between the guns and then the other thing is just the, kind of amount of anger that's in society and like the level of division. I just think it's so unhealthy that people are just like, 
I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of hate right now, you know? And I think that our whole society, like there are fruits of that anger and hate going around and it just results in that kind of activity, you know? And I, well, I think I'm about, angry, but I feel like anger is justified when there's children whose coffins are being painted like Superman or Disney princesses that the things mm-hmm. they loved, like there shouldn't be coffins that size. It's just, yeah. it's infuriating. There's no yeah, way to not I think feel that's angry. like an appropriate anger. And I guess when I say anger, I mean, just like the general kind of like dislike between people where they're like, oh, this person thinks that, this person, and they're the worst. And just like the social media kind of angst that exists where people are constantly, I don't know, mad at each other, you know? Um, but I think, yeah, it's certainly appropriate to, I mean, I saw that post that you did with the, Superman casket. And I was like, what is this? And I just, as soon as I saw it, like made me want to cry. It's like, it's horrible. This is a parent that's losing this kid and this kid that's losing this opportunity forever uh, to live his life. You know, and I look back at my own friends that died. I'm like, I remember them every year. And I think, man, what would they be doing right now? That's right. They're totally robbed. Their parents' lives are ruined for Mm -hmm. what? It's just so crazy that an amendment that was written for the constitution when they had muskets that had to be reloaded that's completely apples and oranges from an assault weapon with hundreds of rounds flying out you know it's just it's just not what that the intention that our forefathers had yeah that's a that's a tough one for sure and i i don't know i i myself am a gun owner so i'm like i like guns and i feel safer when i have them you know um, but it's really problematic for people to just continually year after year do this. And so we need to find some kind of solution. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, like, what do you love about writing? Um, I just like being able to share my thoughts and create characters that are people that sometimes you just meet people in your life that you want to capture and you want to sort of hold that fun house mirror to life. And I think people find themselves in some of the scenes, especially with Odd Mom Out. I think it's a more hyperbolized version of motherhood because it's in New York City. Mm-hmm. But even if you live in a really small town, if you watch Odd Mom Out, you'll see, you'll you'll be able to see types that you know. I mean, even if like I grew up watching Little House in the Prairie, there's always like Nellie Olson the bitch or you know, uh, people I, that I are co- love your little bit on Nellie Olson, man. Yeah. I, I watched a little She's bit of the original <laughs> Karen. She's the original Karen. Um, but I do feel like, you know, pe- with that show, I loved people coming up to me saying, you know, thank you. Sometimes I feel like lonely as a mom because there's this whole mom scene and like mommy mafia things you're supposed to do. And I just feel like everyone got some handbook about motherhood that I didn't get. And I just think like that everyone's in the same boat. And I, I still get, you know, messages from moms in Ireland or India, you know, all over the world saying that the show made them laugh when they were having postpartum or they felt like less lonely and more connected to the perspective of my character. So it just made me feel cozy and happy that they, that it gave them some laughs. I mean, it's ultimately, it's a comedy. So the goal is to make people laugh mm-hmm. and definitely laughed during it. What, um, what helps you to be happy? Like you seem like a person who just is like very comfortable in your own skin. Like, how do you find that happiness? Like, what are you doing to, to get there? 
That's such a good question. So my follow-up to Sometimes I Feel Like a Nut is a book called Sprinkle Glitter on My Grave. And I think Mm -hmm. that book really answers the question because my family is very morbid. Like my dad, my mom and dad have always been very just morbid in terms of like, we're all going to die, appreciate every second, eat that dessert, turn the music on. You know, we're always so grateful. And I think a lot of the reason is that they talked about death a lot growing up and both Mm -hmm. of them lost siblings to cancer. And my mom's mom died at 46. And um, my mom's family actually survived the Holocaust in Paris. So there's just, there was always like a specter of this kind of darkness. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of Jewish families have that even though my dad and I were like basically atheists, but we always appreciated everything for all the people who weren't here. So you're kind of like living life for two Mm -hmm. when you bury a sibling. And um, that just was always part of my upbringing, like the dark humor. And I think that, um, you know, like they, there's a chapter and sometimes in in sprinkle glitter on my grave about how my parents toured cemeteries, the way normal people toward colleges. (laughs) And I really feel like they would, you know, they'd be like, oh, we're on Pinterest looking at tombstone fonts. Like they're very aware of mortality. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's some people who never write wills. They think they're going to live forever. They're impenetrable. They just don't think about it. And I think that there, there have been many studies about the fact that happiness is based on people who are, who really like make the most of their time and have appreciation mm-hmm. and gratitude not in like that cheesy Southern California, like prayer hands type of gratitude, but actually like, oh my God, this is the best food or that we're so lucky we can afford to go to theater when we want. We're so lucky we can take this trip, you know? So I do feel like I have an amazing life, but we're constantly saying to my kids, do you know how lucky we are to just go out to eat when we want? Like, this is so special for, you know, for so many people who never get to do this, or we get to go to Europe or go, you know, every trip we take, we say, this is some people's once in a lifetime trip, you know, and, and it's just, we're constantly saying that to our kids. And I think that's why we have happy kids. Um, and I just think if you focus on how lucky you are and that we're all going to be dead in 60 years or whatever, um, you just appreciate things more. I don't know. I'm the happiest person I know. And I really do think it's because I'm very morbid. Well, I think the gratitude aspect of it, what you're talking about is so right on. I mean, it's like a lot of times people have great things in their life, but they don't appreciate it. You know, they don't recognize like, look what I have, you know, I think right, because they see it, they see a lot of people who have it too. So it all cancels mm-hmm. out because it's relative. But if you, the death component adds another dimension because you see that people are robbed of their lives or, or robbed mm-hmm. of, you know, having a healthy life or just even being able to walk, you know, uh, I just think every wow. little thing, I, I take a beautiful walk and I feel like lucky for my legs. I don't know. Like there, there's, there's not, you can't take anything for granted. So how do you keep that appreciation? You know, cause it's like, you can like talk and say, Hey, like, well, I, I'm just constantly aware of the fact that death could be around the corner. And that's why I'm just appreciating every moment. But like, how well, can you somebody... can start by reading, you could start by reading the obituaries. Okay. So I do that every day, <laughs> really every day. I, and uh-huh. you know, I don't like read the entire part, but I scan them and mm-hmm. I see people dying who are younger than me. People are younger than my parents. So I just like appreciate my parents that I still have my parents. I just, I'm, I'm very close to my parents and so mm-hmm. are my kids. And I'm constantly saying to my kids, like, do you know how lucky are, we are that we have 
Grammy and Poppy. I have friends burying parents all the time. Mm-hmm. My dad's twin brother just died a couple months ago when we went for the funeral. And my kids were hysterically crying. And they weren't even like that close to my uncle David. But, you know, you see that coffin going in the ground and they think it could have been Poppy yeah. easily. It's a twin. And um, I just think it makes them very aware. You know, you can say it till you're blue in the face. But um, I think another another thing that adds to it is travel. Like when we were little, parents always said, there are children starving in Africa, but you knew you couldn't like FedEx your uneaten food to Africa. Like, you, yeah. you know, I, I never really, whenever they said that, we were like, okay, thanks. And then we went to Zimbabwe and I saw these children who were like human skeletons. We went to Zambia and Zimbabwe and Botswana. And we went to these villages and my kids were so in shock. Like, I know that they knew there was poverty. Obviously, we know there's poverty. But when you're walking through the village and you see these kids and how they live in these like little shacks, they they never took anything for granted. I mean, they're just getting in their beds that night. They're like, we have beds. I mean, mm-hmm. any when they were little, you know, if they would complain about something, my husband and I would say like, listen, a billion kids just woke up on a dirt floor. Like you have to understand how lucky you are. And if you just kind of keep pounding it in their head and you make them volunteer, for people less fortunate, then they, they see it, you know, you can, you, it's like, again, you have, you, there's showing and telling you have to show them. I mean, my kids were, um, in Amsterdam for the new year's into 2020, like 2019 into 2020. And we saw, they had read Anne Frank's diary. And then we Mm -hmm. went to her apartment and we saw their hiding place where they were with 10 people. And it's like 200 square feet. And she's, you know, the, the, the lockdown started six weeks later, eight weeks later. And I, you know, my friends, uh, my kids' friends were in like mansions in the Hamptons complaining how this was a nightmare. And I heard my daughter saying, this is not a nightmare. This is a blessing. Like Anne Frank hid in a tiny little thing with no internet. You know, they didn't have seamless. They don't have, like our lives are a piece of cheesecake. All we had to do was stay home and do what we were told was we're so fortunate. And I know that my kids never would have had that perspective without that trip. So I do think travel is part of your education and your ability to be grateful, not just checking into like, you know, Disney World. You got to go to like other places and see how people live and what they endured and continue to. I uh, I spent two years uh, on a mission for my church and we would, I was called to the Michigan area. And so I spent a lot of time in inner cities with exposure that I had never seen. I grew up in a very suburban area, you know, and it was one of the things I saw is just like, uh, not a lot of people had families that were all together or had parents that were like super supportive and loving. And it was just like a eye opening thing, like what life was for them versus what my growing up was. And that's right. I just didn't even see that part of the world or knew it existed. And it's like, just a, you know, it's states away, you know, it's in the country, but it, it was a totally different world than what I grew up in, you know, and definitely made me appreciate, you know, kind of what I had. Completely. Being in cities um, is, is eye-opening and even, you know, living on the Upper East Side, you can forget what is just across the river and in zip codes that are some of the poorest congressional districts in America. So we volunteered a food pantry in Queens and these are people like, you know, it's a half an hour drive and my kids see little kids who need food. And they're, they're the only way that they can get food is to go to this pantry. That's it. 
And some of sometimes they're waiting in the freezing cold. We go Thanksgiving the Saturday before Thanksgiving to give turkeys and stuffing mm-hmm. sides and all that. And it's freezing cold. And they're all waiting and when it's dark out to get in line for that food. So, you know, it's so important to volunteer to, to keep perspective. And when you have perspective, you have gratitude. When you have gratitude, you're happy. One of the things that's interesting about uh, what you're talking about there is like when you are serving like that, you kind of realize that your life is a lot of ticket. You know what I mean? Like you didn't Completely. do anything to be born to the family that you were born to, you know, that's I mean, right. you just, you know, there's that expression for the, uh, for the grace of God, there go I like that could have been me. If, yep. you know, it's just, I didn't have any real control over that, you know, where I was born. And well, that's, so, that's another thing with sickness. I mean, I feel like health is everything. That's always mm-hmm. a very like Jewish perspective. Like if you don't have your health, you have nothing. But I feel like a lot of people through life, you hear of someone getting cancer or whatever illness befalls them. And they say, why me? And my dad always would say like, why not you? You know, like, why not you? What's so great about you that you don't deserve to have Anyone is prone. It is a lotto ticket. So you Mm -hmm. have to feel so lucky for your health and, you know, never forget what other people are. There's a whole world of the sick Mm -hmm. in hospitals suffering, you know, whether a loved one is sick or they themselves are sick. I'd rather have it be me than than a loved one. Mm Um, but you always have to think about that. It's great to get sick every once in a while. And when we get sick, we hate it. Like, oh man, being sick is way harder than I thought it was. <laughs> you know, yeah, and you're just scared you're never going to get better. Yeah, but like when you, you get sick, and you appreciate it. Yeah, it makes you appreciate what you have in your body. And as you get older, like it kind of like shifts away, you know, but yeah. Totally. Well, I'm really glad I asked you that question about happiness. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a long answer. Got, no, it's perfect. I mean, like, I think that's what most people are trying to get out of life. And when, you know, they're going to Disneyland or going to movies or buying clothes or whatever they're doing, like they're trying to be happy, you know? And I think most of the time people look for it in kind of the wrong places, you know, where they're like trying to get as much pleasure as they want instead of like real substantial happiness, you know? And mm-hmm. I think yeah, that stuff's all fleeting. Yeah. It lasts for like 10 minutes tops. You know, and I, I, I'm reading a book by Andre Agassi, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with who that is, but he's like a yeah, of course, tennis yeah, player, great tennis player, and he talked about uh, winning uh, some of these championships, and he's like, the moment I won, nothing changed about me. I didn't feel any happier. I was just like, well, isn't there supposed to be more to this? <laughs> you know, and I think like it's that constant effort of like trying to live life and like do, you know, like just being productive and serving and taking care of other people. Like there's way more happiness in that than there is like being proud and like, I'm the best, you know? Yeah, totally. People create these rungs for themselves that if they get this house or this thing, if Mm -hmm. they, you know, achieve this level of fame or accomplishment financially, that they'll be happy. And then those are the most miserable people because they realize they've attained all those rungs on the ladder and, and they're still miserable. So. Yeah. And a lot of that is thinking that it's like comparative, right? Like I'm comparing myself to somebody else and that comparison, like, look, I'll have more, or I'll be better. And it's like, that yeah. doesn't make you happy. That's a losing game. <laughs> yeah. That's and there's always somebody game. that has more too, you know? Totally. So um, one of the things that you mentioned in your books that you had cancer at 35. And I just yeah. want to ask like, from dealing with that, like, what did you learn about like 
overcoming that? Like, how did that make you stronger? Like what, what lessons did you learn from that experience? I think it gave me like, it gave me sort of more balls. I felt like, Mm -hmm. all right, screw it. Like I, I beat this. And I, and then I later had a, even after that book, I had, um, a lump in my left boob. I had a double mastectomy. Mm-hmm. And so I've had these, it's weird because I don't really think about it that much. So many people are like, how are you? You're so strong. You dealt with that. And I said, oh, it's nothing. Because when I went in for my, they did this MRI type thing. I had to lie in a tube for an hour and 15 minutes. It was awful. Mm-hmm. And I was getting really stressed because I'm slightly claustrophobic. And then this woman came in with her six-year-old doing the same thing. And I thought, oh my God. I'm so lucky that it's me and not my child. Mm-hmm. I would so much rather have it be me. If, if it were my kid, I would say, please let, let us switch places. And so it's like, suddenly I went from saying, oh my God, I have this tumor to my wish came true. It's me. It's not my yeah. kid. So I didn't really, ca- I didn't care. I mean, I cared. It wasn't fun. I was in a wheelchair for about four weeks, but, um, you know, and then I had a cane, but I was, the whole time I was thinking, that poor mother next to me had her daughter going through this and I don't know if she came out okay. You know, people bury children all the time with cancer. And so I just did not let it bother me. And instead of, again, instead of saying, why me? I was like, thank goodness it's me and not my kid. Yeah, so it's all how you frame gratitude, it. Yeah. yeah, it's all how you frame it. So um, I would say that actually it got me to a place where I had to sort of stop and say, I'm going to take care. I mean, it was just a fluke, probably genetic thing. It had nothing to do with the sun, but Mm -hmm. it got me to a point when I started writing this, um, the chapter in that book you read, it was called Tumor Humor. I started thinking about maybe taking a little bit of time for myself. And, and I, I was in, I went to a therapist to like, just talk through it and they give you a social worker. And I actually liked it at Sloan Kettering Hospital here. And they talk about, you know, what you're going through and all the stuff. And so I figured I would kind of continue that. So I went from age 36 to 40 once a week to this amazing woman who would just kind of like tease apart what I was going through and talk about it. And I can say truly like those were such important sessions for me because I got to kind of like process going through all of it. And she was such a rock star and she was you know, it's not that kind of like deep analysis you see in movies where they're like, tell me about your mother. It wasn't that. <laughs> it would be like, I'm feeling stressed about this. And she'd be like, okay, let's make it better. And then when I was, you know, after a few years, she was like, you're good. Like, you don't need me anymore. You know, I gave her a big hug and she said, my door's always open. But I, it wasn't that I was unhappy. I was just trying to manage, like, I have three kids. I, I've now found out I have this gene um, that's not great. And, you know, what am I going to do going forward? And I felt like the courage side really was more like, you know, Oh, sorry, screw it. I'm going to try and you couldn't help yourself. Could you? (laughs) No, I couldn't. Sorry. Sorry. Um, but I just, I feel like I was more courageous. I don't know how to explain it any other way. When Mm -hmm. I went in a meeting, I sort of was like busted out my best kind of thing. I I never felt as trepidatious because again, when you're aware of your mortality, you're, what do you have to lose? You know, the worst thing they can do is say, no, we're not going to buy your TV show or whatever it is, you know? So I, I just and feel then like- And life is still great. You know what I mean? You yeah. still have your kids and you still have your husband and all this stuff. Exactly. You know? I have so much to be thankful for. Um, so it, I never get really nervous about other stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a, uh, you know, I, 
and in some ways, I think like you getting cancer, even though that's like a really horrible thing, like having that second lease on life, you do appreciate it more. And oh, I'm so when, glad it happened. When I, when I have, I, I, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, like, when I think about my uh, Columbine situation that happened, like I go back on the anniversary of Columbine and they have these memorials with each student that passed away and then the teacher who passed away just talking about like what they were into and uh, you know, just about their life a little bit, you know, and I'll go through and I'll read each one and I do it on the anniversary when I'm not in town. I'll just kind of read them anyway, you know, and it just helps me to like fully embrace that and appreciate it and be like, man, I need to go out and make the most of the life that I have, you know, totally. I owe it and to them. Like I survived and I need to like not let that be a waste, you know? I have a really big scar from just above my knee all the way up, like about a foot long. And when I once went, I went to a plastic surgeon to get a mole removed off my face. Mm -hmm. um, and he was looking at something else. I had another mole and he said, you know, I, I, I couldn't help but notice that scar. And I have a laser that can take care of that for you and ameliorate the whole visual situation. And I was like, absolutely not. And a friend of mine has a tattoo, Nous sommes nos cicatrices, mm -hmm. which means we are our scars. And I think that is an incredible line for both of us, given your history and what you yeah. endured. Um, but your scars are invisible. Mine are visible. Um, but everybody has invisible wounds. And I do think that they make you who you are, mm -hmm. whether it's a loss or failure, whatever it is. But you, you don't want to laser over them. You want you want them to be there because they're part of the fabric of your soul and it makes you who you are. And I think often a better person. Yeah. There's no doubt. Like I feel like I'm stronger and like have more appreciation for the world. And I always think that I'm a better friend uh, because of what I went through. And I'm like, I just want to enjoy being around people more and, you know, appreciate people while you have them. You know, I lost a sister to cancer two I'm years so ago. Sorry. Yeah. It was oh, like, that's so awful. You know, you go through like a like a big public thing like Columbine, and everyone's like, "Oh, that's the worst thing ever." I'm like, "Man, losing my sister was like way of worse." Of course, that's so gutting. You know? But um, I'm so sorry. Yeah, do, I do. I don't know. I think those kind of things do make you appreciate uh, people. Well, I've loved talking to you. Like, uh, I don't want to take all your well. time, but I do have a couple no, of, of silly questions for you before we go. Okay. Um, what's your favorite pair of shoes that you own? Um, my favorite pair of shoes are a pair of Vans that I'm looking at right now that I wear, you know, on the treadmill, but it's a pair of Vans that have like, they're black with um, like a skeleton, a foot skeleton on them. So it okay. looks like you're looking at your feet. Yeah. That's funny. With x-rays. Yeah. Um, that doesn't surprise me because I, you know, I, a lot of people would say like, oh, this really nice, fancy, whatever shoe and yours is funny. And <laughs> That fits it's very me. They're very me. Um, and then it leads me to another question also about vans. Um, but would you rather hitchhike a ride from someone in a creepy van or eat nothing but red meat for the rest of your life? Oh, hitchhike. Cause I know hitchhike, uh, I could probably kick their ass and win. Okay. Um, Jill for the record hates vans. I hate, um, <laughs> I hate specifically windowless vans. Okay. Windowless vans. And then also uh, doesn't eat red meat. Yeah. So I tried to pick two of her least favorite things to choose from. Um, and then the last <laughs> question for you, what is your favorite scent? 
Oh, um, Joe Malone, Red Roses and gasoline. It's a tie. <laughs> I love gasoline. Uh, like my scent, my perfume is Joe Malone, Red Roses, but gasoline is my favorite. So I, if hilarious. I had to inhale one thing, it would be gasoline. I love yeah, it. That Probably not up. great for me, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, don't get, uh, you know, sniffing the gas pumps. But Yeah. Well, thanks so much for kind of sharing your wisdom with us. My pleasure. Thank you for your and... amazing invention. I no, love it. Yeah. No, I'm so glad that you like it. And I'm glad it's helping you and really appreciate you. <laughs> thanks. We'll have a great afternoon. Yep. Bye.